Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Welcome to another episode of Meat Eaters Gear Talk Podcast. I'm Giannis Patelis here with Jordan Bud. Jordan, what's, what's been going on? Oh, Hunting man. turkeys? Hunting turkeys. Guiding turkeys. I've got a couple guys sitting out right now that as of about 8 o'clock this morning, they had a bunch of hens around them I could see, but uh, I didn't see Oh, you see can glass toms. them from a distance and yeah. see what's going on? It's real nice. Nice. Yeah. I like being able to do that. Are they archery hunting still or are they shotgun hunting They're now? shotgunning it. Yeah. I think shotgun season opened just this last weekend, so... It's been going good. Last week for the youth season, we had a nine-year-old, and I think on the last podcast we had talked about it a little bit. And I thought she was eleven, but she's uh, she was actually nine, and she shot her Merriams with us, which finished her slam. They got it done, and it was like a month and a day. So that's crazy. incredible. Yeah, I realized that I could actually, if I kill a Eastern in Michigan then all I would need would be a Rio for, my, for to get a slam mm. in one season. It would take me a little bit longer than that because I killed that Osceola way back in early March. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I had a quick little fleeting dream of maybe zipping over to Kansas somewhere and trying to get me a Rio. Mm-hmm. But probably not going to. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, I'm gonna have an I'm gonna have a nice uh, a, a a good uh, a good turkey season, especially after uh, this weekend where uh, Montana opened on the 15th. There must be a yeah. gazillion states that opened on the 15th of April because it seemed like Instagram also blew up on uh, on dead turkey photos. But uh, yeah, I hunted with uh, my buddy Zach Sandow from Onyx, and we've been doing this trip now for I, don't know, I think this was our fourth year. And uh, we head up to Region 1 and Region 2, Montana. Montana's got an interesting deal going. You can kill five gobblers in Montana. People are Ooh. like, holy cow, five? You're going to knock down the population. But Montana's a giant state, and there's seven hunting regions. Four of those hunting regions allow you a region-specific turkey tag, and that's Regions 1, 2, 5, and 7. Then you also get one statewide tag. So that's how you end up with five 
gobbler tags. You can actually kill uh, some hens too uh, in some very like places where they just have way, way, way too many mm-hmm. turkeys. And I think those are fall tags. But in the spring, it's five gobblers. And so they really spread the pressure out, right? Region one, if you left region one and went to region seven, I'm guessing you'd be at a minimum seven hours. It's probably closer to eight or nine to drive from one of those regions to the other. Um, so like I said, the pressure is super spread out. And I've been trying now for at least five, six years to try to kill the, what I call the Montana slam <laughs> and kill, uh, kill birds in four regions plus a statewide and uh, I've not been successful. But this year, just coming off the, on the heels of this trip, killed a bird in Region 1, killed two birds in Region 2. So I used my Region 2 tag there and then my statewide. Uh, and then now I've just got Region 5 and 7 left, and I've got trips planned, uh, both of them with the kids, with the family for both those regions. So I'm, I'm, it's looking good unless something unless there's just a blizzard in all of may that that might slow me down but uh yeah it was sweet weather was nice birds were flocked up definitely kind of winter flocks like we worked one flock one morning that was 60 birds uh which was Ooh. pretty cool um one of the bigger flocks i've ever worked and we got the whole flock to within i don't know 100 150 of the deeks of course once that happened, all the Jakes came over like they like to do yeah. and just started pounding on the Jake we had set up. Then we had two gobblers look like they were co- going to come in wide, but then circle in and, and come into the spread. I don't, I think that we, they had been out in the open for so long and our hide was, we were, it's a big ponderosa, both of us on the same tree, but a big one, you know, like a three, maybe even four foot diameter mm-hmm. tree, big tree. And we had built a kind of a brush blind in front of us, but they'd been out in front of us for, it seemed like hours. And both of us are shaking, trying to hold the position, you know, legs. I can look over and see Zach's legs kind of shaking a little bit and I'm shaking. So I don't know if the gobblers caught a little bit of movement and it just made them veer off or, um, you know, maybe our high just wasn't quite good enough, but they veered a little bit wide, um, but Zach was up to shoot. I already shot one the day before. And, and so I said, hey, if you, if you think you can make it, shoot it. And uh, he, uh, oh, man, can't decide if I should mention the which choke he was using. He had patterned his gun out to 40. And at 60, shot at this Tom, 55-60, which is a little bit of a poke, 20-gauge mm-hmm. TSS. Um, but... He that Tom ran away looking very unscathed, no like puffed up his feathers, no limping, no sort of nothing, just sort of did the old little like, oh, what was that? Um, and ran off. Um, he then proceeded to shoot one of the Jakes <laughs> that was that was standing around too close. <laughs> um, but yeah, goes to show you, you got to pattern it out to as far as you think you're gonna shoot. Um, he felt like the work he had done on the gun or the other people had done on the gun, he was going to be dialed. And the only reason I'm not giving you more details is because I just feel like it's not my place to go. If it was my gun and I, and I had, this had happened to me, I would go and I would go and tell you that being said, I had patterned my gun out to 60 since I had shot that Osceola at 60 and I'm shooting the Beretta Ultima, uh, a 300, I believe what it's called. 
I just got it, so I'm hard to remember the name. It's got a Carlson's TSS choke in it for the. Tw- it's a 20 gauge. I believe the choke is a 555, and I'm shooting nines TSS nines uh, Federal's load, and at 60, I would say that my pattern is still. Looking at my hands right now, trying to measure the distance. I'm going to tell you here, like it's not much over two feet. Like the 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 densest part of the pattern. I mean, sure, there's a few flyers at 60, which is expected, but the densest part of the pattern is still two feet. So, um, Dang. yeah, when we went down to region two, we've. I was just telling you, man, it was we were on the heels of the nice or the the end of the uh, not the heels, but it was the tail of the nice weather. And at about noon on Monday, the shit was going to come in. We're, it was going to be wet. And we're working these birds all morning. And they'd gotten up on this timbered ridge that we couldn't really hunt. You could go over there, but it's one of those deals where you knew you were just going to be working the private-public boundary. I just hate doing that. So we are on private that we could hunt. So I just figured, you know what? I'll just stay back here. It's only the third day of season. These birds couldn't have gotten messed with that much. I'll keep making some soft calls. Eventually, they want to be down here in these meadows. You know, there's, you know, cow patties and 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 horse mm-hmm. poop everywhere. You can see that they had been scratching in there. So I said, just we'll just be patient. Hopefully, it happens before the the rain comes. Anyways, eventually, all four gobblers, I think three hens, fl- they actually flew off the ridge and flew down into this bottom with us, maybe a hundred yards away, which is cool. But it was. There was enough thick, small ponderosas where they couldn't quite see our setup, but they were slowly coming our way. And eventually I could see it, maybe 60. I could see one of the toms in there, and I just gave him a little I think it was just enough to make him veer to where he could see up the hill and look and saw our spread. And man, once he did, he just full strut and just marched from 60 to 20 and was just all up in the decoys. And I'm sure you see you see it a lot. You got guys hunting out of your blinds over decoys, but it's kind of amazing how well those decoys work. Sometimes mm-hmm. we had DSD Dave Smith decoys uh, had the posturing Jake upright hen feeding him, and man, that bird came in, and I knew he was locked in, so I was going to have all the opportunity I wanted. And 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 Zach, it, it was my turn to shoot. So he comes by me at 30, but he's in full strut. So I'm like, well, I'll let him get by another tree and get right up in the decoys. And then I'll start calling at him a bunch and get him stretch his neck out and shoot. He gets in there and I, for a minute, full minute, I just, (laughs) and he would just gobble, 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 gobble at everything, but not come out of strut, just stuck as like puffed out. And it was almost he was like just completely stuck. He would not come out of it. And it's, it's like they get so locked in on the decoy thing that I, I mean, I honestly think I could have stood up and jumped around and that bird it would have taken him a while to, to be like, oh, well, hold on. That thing's not supposed to be here. Right. Which it brings up the whole decoy thing. I want to get your opinion, too. Mm-hmm. Like. It's always we were just talking about this before we started. It's all situational situation dependent and how much I want to use them or don't want to use them, right? Like it's so much easier to run and gun without decoys. I like to hunt without them better because I just like to call in birds and fool the birds. I feel like I did more as a hunter and as a woodsman if I do it without decoys. But 
If you don't have that decoy set up in that situation, you make that call, he starts coming, right? When he gets up to 40 or gets to wherever he's going to be where he, he can see where that call came from because he's got that bead on that tree where that call came from and he sees that there's no hen or no other turkey, he's not sticking around long. You have yeah. to take that shot and make it happen in, in that moment, right? Well, the decoys, it like just gets you, lets you see the show a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. See the puffed up turkey up close, watch him gobble another 20, 30 times. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to say I'm conflicted. Like I said, it's situation dependent and, you, and I just feel like you got to choose what's right for you in the moment. Um, we only had three days to hunt. I was trying to kill at least two birds and I was in that scenario where we had whatever it was, a couple hundred acres of, of private to hunt. Uh, I was going to use every trick I had, every tactic I had, every advantage I had to try to get those birds within range. Yeah, I think that like a uh, couple things. I have started to set up. I'll start. I guess I'll start with this first. Eastern Montana is the same way, but here is very open, so it's not like it's yeah. super thick, and they just like they have to make it to thirty yards to probably be able to see even if there was a decoy there, they can see you from a long ways away. And so I tend to, like last year we had a lot of jakes around and they were like beaten up on toms, I think. And so anything that had to do with like a a jake decoy, some of the times the toms didn't like it and they wouldn't even pay attention to it. Yeah, so, and I think that that's why. This year, I think I've seen like one jake or two jakes maybe. So I'm mm. not exactly sure what that means, but uh, there's a lot. Well, of, I think it means all your jakes from last year are two-year-olds now. now. Yeah. Um, so we haven't seemed to really have that, but it always just makes me, I always just try to start with one hen decoy mm. and just start with one. And then um, sometimes like in the earlier season when they're all flocked up, you just need to put more out there to make it more enticing to come to you or to at least... Yeah you know, half-ass come your direction. We were having that issue last week. There were, it's it's so funny how much those turkeys have changed just in this last week. Um, last week, there was like a lot of toms. Like their attitudes changed. Their attitudes changed and just how they were flocked up. Like there was a mm-hmm. lot of toms with a lot of hens and they were still kind of flocked up, but starting to break up, if that makes sense. Right now, this morning, I saw three different groups of hens, six, probably six in a pack, and I I heard a bunch of toms. I did not see a tom this morning. I I wasn't out there that long, but I didn't see one. Um, so it's just funny how much they've changed there. But my second part of that, and I think I have started moving how I set up blinds and where I set them up. I know it's really hard sometimes to set things up where you can't see that far because you want to be able to see a lot. But mm-hmm. I kind of relate it, and I think it relates to elk hunting as well. A lot of people relate turkey hunting to elk hunting, but I was thinking of it more as like coyote hunting when you're trying to call in a coyote. Sometimes you need to put yourself in a spot where they have to be in range when they pop over the hill to look at whatever you're call- you're whatever sounds you're making to be able to even see 
where you're calling from, they have to be in range when they pop over the hill. And that's what I've started mm-hmm. doing with turkey blinds too. And it seems like it's started to make a difference. Sometimes you just can't do that. Like sometimes the, it just, I don't know. We've got a couple places down here that it just seems like where they like to be. They just, I don't know if you're going to call them like really into the woods to get them at least right now to get them like 30 yards to shoot them. But I don't know, it, like a little depression or anything like that. I've just started trying to stick those blinds in where like they have to come pretty dang close to even see what you're chirping about. But it was kind of funny this morning. Uh, I was down. We had a really big windstorm last night and I was worried about blinds and for a good reason because I went to three different blind locations and uh, all three of them were like blown into a tree. So that was awesome. Uh, but there was some hens going crazy and like they were still, I just snuck in to reset this blind and the hens, like they were still in their roost. And if you didn't, if you didn't know that you were on private ground and there was nobody else there, you would have thought like that guy sucks at calling, but the hen was Mm. just going nuts. Like didn't even take a breath. It was kind of crazy actually to to listen to yeah i've heard multiple people say that over the years that the worst caller i ever heard was the old hen (laughs) worst sounding turkey i ever heard was a hen um yeah it's funny yeah so i got i I know i got a little ranty on that but uh that's kind of my for sure the the decoy thing there's a lot there's a lot of tactics and decoys that i don't study up on right because you're thinking about Oh, it's early season. They're flocked up. What kind of spread should I have? Oh, it's mid-season. They're doing this. What kind of spread should I have? Uh, I'm still very much a beginner with decoys, and my game plan is, oh, well, if they can see the decoy, it's usually going to help. And that's not always the case. There's definitely, I was in Wisconsin a couple years ago, and I thought for sure, strutter decoy, the same decoys I'm using now, DSD strutter decoy, couple of hens, and usually that strutter with the real tail fan, they can't resist. Mm-hmm. I had a Jake and a Tom coming in. They got to within 150, maybe. And we're like, nope, veered off. Already seen that. And I think that it was later in the season. They had seen Deeks on that field. Um, and it just uh, <laughs> weren't, weren't getting fooled by mm-hmm. it. Um, and then maybe like you're saying too, it could be that, oh, if it was only hens, they would have come, right? Like you're not in the turkey's head. You can't figure yeah. it out. So. They're not, uh, they're not foolproof by any means, but no, anyways, they, they, sh- they sure worked on Monday for us. We ended up, uh, nice. Zach shot one, folded him at, uh, whatever it was, 15, 20 yards. And, uh, cause after he wouldn't come out of strut for me, Zach, uh, Zach couldn't take it anymore and shot him, <laughs> which was good. Cause I was waiting for him too. Yeah. And he was about to get up. And I said, no, 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 no. Stay, stay, stay. And I just started giving it to those. The other three that were left, and they circled wide. They kind of wanted to come to the deeks, but didn't, and so they hung up. And I hadn't quite ranged right where they were sitting, but I figured it was fifty to sixty. Um, one thing I'm starting to gauge a little bit is, you know, how they say when you should shoot at ducks or geese, you should be able to see their eye, and then they're close enough. Hmm. You ever heard that? No, no, I haven't. Um. 
I think with turkeys, it's very similar. And again, depending on what range, some people only want to shoot them out to 40. But I think that past 60, you're going to have a hard, at least for me in my eyes, I'm going to have a hard time really picking up that eye and really picking out different features. I'm just saying this is it's as a ways to gauge distance if you haven't, um, you know, use your range finder in that particular setup. You didn't have time or whatever. You might not be carrying a range finder, which I don't always t- carry turkey hunting, but it sure is nice to validate all that, right? You I think shoot you a should. turkey and you're like, oh, yeah. how how far was that? Boom, 35. Oh, great, great to know that 35 was completely on. Or boy, that one was kind of long because I shot one, folded him. I was going to let the other two roll, but his buddy came back and started pecking on him. I thought, man, you know, this is, uh, I think this is a sign to give an opportunity to pass up. So I called again, he stretched his neck out and I shot, folded him too. And I mean, it was 59, 60 on the dot Mm -hmm. to the tree that I was leaning up against. Um, so again, I just think that, you know, my choke was holding that pattern tighter, better at that range. And, uh, what Zach was using this wasn't quite getting it done. Yeah. Uh, the quick note with the range finders, like I definitely think, especially if you're going to a new area, you should really consider bringing one with you. Um, that's one thing I see a lot here is a lot of, you know, a lot of our clients, they're coming from back East. It's really heavily wooded. You know, you have a hard time seeing 200 yards um, let alone further than that, and you get to a spot where it's super wide open, you have a lot of trouble gauging 40 yards. Um, mm, 100%. You know? Yeah. So things seem to be what it, the tending is, or not tending, the trend seems to be <clears throat> that folks, things are farther than they think that they are away. And just a simple rangefinder, right when you sit down, just to hit a few spots and get an idea, like so easy to do, and it could, you know, get your bird. Yeah, yeah, I hundred percent agree. It's uh, it's a completely different turkey hunt out here, and I f- I forget that every year. But the openness of the West, I mean, sure there are some places where it's where it's thicker, but the openness of the West just throws in a completely different wrench into it. It's a lot easier to bushwhack a turkey, especially if you've got hilly terrain, because you see them at 200 yards, they go behind a hill, you sprint 200 yards, get to that ridge and just start peeking over, right? That's a hard thing to pull off in Wisconsin's country. Um, Yeah. Leaves are too noisy. You just don't when, you know, like you said, they get into the woods, it gets thick, you can't see them. Um, but th- so that can work for you and against you. Because again, if you just sit down and it's w- wide open cow pasture uh, for 400 yards and you're over there calling and that turkey looks down there and doesn't see another turkey, I guess in his head, he says, nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, fool me once. They ain't going to fool me twice. Yeah. Um, all right. So anyways, good, good opener. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm headed for my Montana slam. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. 
mouth calls or diaphragms. I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Not to be outdone by turkeys. Our cat hunting took a turn. (laughs) Yeah. Took a turn for the good. Old Ming has got it done. Second to last day of season. Season ended April 14th. Turkeys opened April 15th. Uh, So we hunted the uh, 13th, actually. And uh, went back to the same spot that I talked about last time. It's a ridge. There was a bunch of cat tracks. I knew there was a cat living there. There was a bunch of kills. I uh, took a friend of mine, a colleague, uh, Christine, from uh, Meat Eater. She's our HR generalist. Uh, great gal, uh, new to the West, and uh, was super stoked to go out. And she, this is the second time she came with me. We didn't cut a track the first time. And uh, it was snowing uh, since about 5 a.m. that morning, so not a great morning to actually cut a track. But it, again, I knew there was a cat there on this ridge, and I figured, well, what the heck, we'll give it four or five hours of hiking and hopefully Mingus will pick up something that's under the snow or, or win the cat or whatever, but hopefully something will happen. It'll be worthwhile to get out. It was the shittiest walking. I maybe have had all, I had one or two hikes that were as bad with snowshoes, breakable crust that was three or four inches thick. Mm. And a lot of times going mid thigh deep, uh, just brutal. <laughs> like you really get, get to be good at reading snow conditions because you don't, you take 10 steps in that stuff and you go, okay, it's going to take me you know, 30 minutes to make it a hundred yards and I'm going to be tired. So you start to really gauge like, oh, is, is it better if there's a little bit of slope to it? Did that aspect get a little more sun? Uh, should I be close to the trees, away from the trees? And you really start to figure out where that snow is going to hold you a little bit better. But uh, anyways, that was rough. But uh, we we powered through, had our hiking poles. I feel I always feel like a real tourist. And, and when I was living <laughs> in Colorado, we'd, we'd rent snowshoes, rent poles, and you'd see people out on the trails, you know, having a great old time with their fanny pack, their poles, snowshoes, just tromping along. And so that's how I feel like when I'm out there with my hiking poles and snowshoes. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we're kind of working a little benchy. Yeah, it was a bench on this ridge. And uh, every 10 minutes or so, if I hadn't seen Mingus in a while, I pull out the GPS and kind of just check and see where he's at. And uh, one of the times I pull it out, look down, and it says that he's not moving, but he's still barking, which could could me, but he is barking. We couldn't hear him. Snowing too much, a little bit of wind. So we walk over to the edge. He was only, I don't know, 150 yards, maybe 200 yards away from us. And once we got to the edge, I could hear him barking treed. 
But man, we've had a lot of false alarms this year. I, I, I could say one thing. I think after that day, I can trust him on his tree bark. Like if I hear the tree bark, I know he's got something to treat. Uh, probably a raccoon, bobcat, or a lion. And uh, because of where we were in our previous intel, I figured it was lion. But I told Christine, don't get excited yet. <laughs> yeah. Once we see the cat, we can get excited. But uh, yeah, we floated down the hill. And sure enough, he had caught what looked to me like another 100-pound cat. And it was in such a thick spot. If you look at my Instagram, you can see I posted mm-hmm. a couple pictures. But all you could see was its face, its ears. I guess you can call that its head. But you, uh, you, you literally couldn't see its neck. I mean, that's all it was, was just its face sticking out. And then if I went to the other side of the tree. You could just see, you know, most of his tail. Um, so it would have been hard to sex it. We really would have had to ask a lot of that cat to move around just properly to sex it. And it, just, it really just didn't have that big look to it. Just kind of a sleeker face, not scrunched up and no rolls of skin, um, not what I would call a bucket head or a pumpkin head, just a little sleeker, narrower, um, just didn't give off that vibe of a, of a mm-hmm. cat that, uh, I was gonna, you know, try to harvest. So we hung out for 15, 20 minutes and took some pictures and had a snack and, uh, walked away. That's the end of lion season. Nice. People, I don't know if it's, I mean, I'm sure it is on the internet. People don't read the captions or don't listen no, to what don't. you're saying all no. the time. And so everybody's always asking, well, why are you just treating them and not killing them? Did you kill it? It's like, dude, if I killed it, I would have had a picture for you of me and the dead cat, hundred percent. Um, but to reiterate, I'm looking for a mature Tom and I don't know exactly what that is, but I know when my buddy Jeff flood sends me a picture of a mature Tom that he killed, that was, involved in some depredation uh it's a different looking critter like like i said it's just got that dark crease in its forehead it's got more kind of some rolls in its in its face it's it's rounder chunkier head um and uh they just look bigger yeah i, th- I think when i see the right one it'll be very apparent you're gonna to know um, yeah yeah and but that, that's a thing. It's this whole business about hunting these cats, chasing these cats. It's I don't know. I mean, I guess if I if I tree a nice tom every year, will I kill a nice tom every year? Probably. Don't see myself passing it up. Maybe things will change after I've killed four or five of them. But um, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, no reason not to. Right? There's a there's a there's a there's a quota. There's a season. Uh, it's a managed population and, uh, the meat's great. Um, so yeah, I'm still waiting for, for the big one. And, uh, I'm sure next year, December 1st, first day of season, uh, or this year, I should say December 1st, we're going to go out and get ourselves a nice big old Tom cab. Heck Yeah. When you guys were, uh, when you and Zach were turkey hunting, did you, how'd you guys camp? Did you like stay in a house or did you do like a car camping deal or what? Car camped. Nice. Yeah, mobile. We each have our own trucks. I actually took some pictures of, of the car camping setups and it's nothing elaborate. Um, and that actually brings us to uh, 
little you know little segment that we were trying to trying to do and promote and and uh repeat here on gear talk podcast but it's uh what's new and uh this uh, gear item isn't exactly new i got a new version of it it's the single wide i've had the double wide i think for two full seasons maybe even three i know i had it with me sheep on but it's the nemo roamer um a little bit spendy. I can't remember the, the price, but I'm telling you, we've lent out a couple. My wife was just telling me she's lent out our pads a couple times or brought them with to these trainings that she does for work and let people borrow them and just sleep on floors or whatever. And man, I mean, it is like you're not sleep. It does not feel like you're sleeping on an inflatable, inflatable mattress whatsoever. And they're tough. Um, mm, nice. trucks back of my truck's kind of dirty. It's got drywall dust and crust from little little project we got going on at the house. I just didn't have time to clean it all out, which I normally like to do before I go sleep in the back of it. But I didn't have any qualms. I mean, obviously a screw or a nail is going to punch right through it, right? It's an air pad. But mm-hmm. anyways, uh, super comfy. Uh, I'm guess it's got some sort of R value for insulation, but, uh, the single wide is probably the size of a, I don't know, not quite two basketballs stacked on top of each other, yeah. basketball and a half, something like that. And, um, yeah, I just leave it. I have a, a inch and an eighth chunk of plywood that's covered in like that green outdoor carpet. Yeah. It sits on the deck rails inside my topper in my bed. So that pad was underneath it. When I wasn't using it, I would just fold it under that shelf. It would just be out of the way, sleeping bags there, pillows there. So when you're ready, just plop that sucker out, crawl, stick my feet in there. And I think two nights I slept in there. And then one night I I just just yanked it out and set it on the ground. We had a nice grassy spot we were parked on. And uh, just slept outside. But yeah, other than that, I have a Rubbermaid uh, uh, tote that's full of my, what I call the car. It's labeled the car camping kitchen. Um, We didn't even use that much out of it. I think we used one pot. I have those MSR pots, uh, titanium, Teflon Mm -hmm. coated, right? They're more of a backpacking pot. But when you're just one or two people and all you're doing is warming up some water, heating up some sausages or um what do we bring i bought i brought a quart of uh, goose stew that i'd made dumped it in there warmed it up two minutes later and you got hot stew we ate that um so yeah that and then a cooler some food a few beers in there uh what else jug of water um perfect and then my hunting gear gets yeah, me so simple. excited for camping man Oh yeah, this is our, this is the my annual uh, kickoff yeah. to camping, um, and it's a, it's a nice break in right because you're still pretty comfortable. We're driving around. If you want to stop at a cafe and have a burger in rural Montana for lunch one day, you can. Um, but we're prepared to you know stay out. But yeah. yeah, it's super nice to, to sleep out, and it was chilly. I'm I was glad I, I, I brought the uh, <laughs> I brought the. Uh, a Nemo zero degree. I can't remember the name of it. It's the one that has the gills that you can probably. open. Yeah, the one that's got the first light camo mm-hmm, on it. Mm-hmm. 
Nice warm bag. It's, I feel like it's just a little bit big and bulky that I would, if I would, I don't know if I'd use it for backpacking. Um, I'm sure you could. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know. I, got, I don't know the weight off the top of my head. I will say the one feature that it has that is super, super sweet. And I think that, that I can't believe everybody else is going to do this. I don't know what they call it or what it is, but I'll try to describe it. The zipper is got this rubberized sort of, it's coating the zipper, but it also protrudes out in front of the zipper, like the direction you're pulling it to close the zipper. And it's, it's, it's kind of like a wing. And what it's meant to do is push the fabric away from the zipper so that you never get your fabric caught in the zipper. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. You probably, you probably have that same bag with that same zipper. I do, right? yeah. Yeah, I do. It's like a lot it's of people like, want to get away from zippers. And I just, I don't know if there's any getting away with zippers, but there's doing stuff like that to them, which is really like forward thinking. Yeah. I mean, it's not like anybody who's spent a lot of time in a sleeping bag knows that, sure, there's a way that you sort of have to zip it up with one mm-hmm. finger under the zipper and that the finger moves the fabric out of the way so that as you're zipping, you can close it up. That being said, it doesn't matter. You climb in there, you forget to do it. You go to pull it up, you're tired and all of a sudden, you know, it jams up and you're fighting it and and because all you want to do is just, is just zip it up and go mm-hmm. to sleep. Um, so someone's thinking about it and, uh, and we're working for solutions. So I like it. Yeah. Anything new and exciting for gear coming across your uh, desk? Yeah, there's um, a couple new things that are just getting ready to hit the market or have hit the market. Um, a lot of folks in the last few days have probably seen the, uh, the new FHF Bino Harness, the FOB. Um, it's a forward opening harness. It's, I've been using it. I used it this whole last fall and I believe you have too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's a great, great harness. I think very well thought out, very modular if you want it to be, or, you know, pretty sleek if you don't want it to be. Um, one question that I've been getting and they have, I know they have been getting a lot is do the magnets and the magnetic closures impact the reliability of using a GPS or a compass um, on your phone and everything? I I talked to Rick from FHF about this just to see what their stance was, and he's like, basically they found that it depended on the phone and even the phone case a little bit, mm. but if you didn't have the phone within basically six inches of the magnet, they didn't see any issues. Um, they didn't find any issues with it. And uh, this seems to be like a large point of of marketing, if you want to call it, of like some companies doing non-magnetics. Mm-hmm. Um, magnets can screw with your pacemaker if you have a pacemaker. So mm-hmm. I think that's something you definitely want to make sure of. Um but as far as affecting your phone and compasses, like magnets on bino harnesses, they're so they're such an efficient way to open and close one-handed. Um, they're pretty damn strong, and they're just like a really good way to do it. The little bit that you might have to maybe take it off or hold your phone out 
away from the harness to use a compass or to use your phone. I just don't think that it's really, I don't, I don't think it's as big a factor as people make it out to be. I think it gets a little overblown. No, I've definitely seen it affect my phone. Um, Mm -hmm. I like to, I'm a person that likes to do the map. My, when I set up my maps, it's, I have it set up in North up so that anytime I use the directional pointer, the map moves to where to to where I'm pointing, right? Mm-hmm. So my phone is pointing at if I pointed at a ridge top, my point point my phone should point that way, whatever. So very quickly, if you're hunting along a river and you're pointing your phone and it's you should be looking at the river on your map, but you're not, it's behind you, you know something's up. It's definitely a, a di- I have the iPhone 12, I think, 12 Pro, something like that. I've definitely seen it affect it. Um, if I'm holding it right next to my bino harness, um, which people do, I think it's going to mm-hmm. affect it for sure. If you're six to 12 inches away, not going to have any issues. Hold it up in front of your face, not going to have any issues. Um, so I, I don't know if, if that's going to make you, you know, not use that product. Um, it hasn't been so bad that it's been annoying. Um, it's just been something that you, that uh, you just get get used to, right? And if you see that it's uh, tweaking with it, just uh, move it away from your from your body a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like uh, I feel like we covered that pretty well. But that was a big question, um, and I've heard that question a lot on magnetic harnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, they are nice. And uh, another moving on another product that just came out uh Argali just came out there a Waihi one person tent um I actually used this tent one night for an overnighter um I swung by the the Argali store um and Brad lives uh, right in Boise there so I was going on a mule deer trip just wanted to be super lightweight and I knew he had this new proto one person and I asked him if I could take it so he he sent it with me um I didn't double check to make sure that there were actually stakes with it. So I got all the way up to where I was going, went to pitch it out right before dark and I didn't have any stakes. So oh, I just tied it to rocks. <laughs> well, I don't think it was Brad. Uh, it was, oh, it was one of Brad's employees that packed it. Well, it was just like the prototype that they'd been bouncing around from person to person. And I it just got I just didn't double check it for stakes, which I I feel like it was my fault. But mm. we can blame it on Brad too. That's fun. So what's up with it? Single wall? Uh it's yes. It is a it is a single wall. You can pitch it with one trekking pole in the middle and then the two ends guy out. Mm-hmm. You have a vestibule. Um they do have an insert that's like a bug netting insert that you can use. I used it with that. Um and it worked well. And yeah, just a lightweight one person with the stakes, the outer canopy, as they call it, and the insert. You're just a tick under two pounds with all of that. And you're, you're uh, at 15 ounces with the stakes and just the canopy only on the outside. So nice. she's small, but uh, nice for run and gun type, you know, if you're hiking with camp on your back or if you just want to go super lightweight it's a good option Mm -hmm. 
Cool. I better call Brad uh, and tell him to send me one. Yeah, there you go. I saw that they're, yeah, he's selling them now. They're out there. All right, let's move on to, uh, we got a couple of listener questions we want to hit on. First one comes from uh, BTS underscore Bushido. I don't know what that means. Behind the scenes, in the bush. <laughs> uh, his question is framed like this. Inserts for hunting boots? Question mark. If yes, which ones? Jordan? Well, uh, it kind of depends on the kind of depends on the boot I've found. Um, I usually try to tell people to just go to like a try like a fairly cheap insole first. So go to like a Superfeet. Superfeet has they're sold in a lot of places. They you have a ton of cheap? different models. Well, where are, like, they? are they? They're 40, like fifty bucks, thirty bucks, forty bucks. Oh, well, I mean, when you consider like, uh, you know, the next step up, like an orthotic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think this fellow is asking about something you'd buy at a hiking, you know, REI type sportsman's warehouse place. Yeah. Super feet, I think. Yep. That's I've my, had good uh, luck with those. The guides, the guides are what I usually uh, try to use if. If the inserts in the boots themselves aren't quite doing it for me, looks like they're ranging from fifty to sixty bucks these days. Ooh, they've gone up. They have a merino one too that I put in my pack boots. It was nice. Huh. Yeah, it is. It is nice. I've got them. Yeah, in my pack boots now. They, uh, you could put them in any boots. I, I actually think I moved them to another set of shoes uh, now that packs are kind of. Um, out now that it's like 65 degrees here but um pack boots tend to be just a smidgen wide for me and those mm. things like filled up the space and really helped yeah. um but real quick as we were talking about it before i think we should do a podcast on car camping stuff and mm. uh, so if anybody has any questions they should send them into gear talk at the media.com and we'll try to yeah cover that'd be them. a good that'd be a good episode yeah. just go go in deep on the car camping oh uh, yeah but uh, yeah, send your questions to geartalk.com. That's the best place to send them to. You can also DM uh, Jordan and I on Instagram, but yeah. uh, we'd appreciate if you just sent an email to geartalk at, at themeateater.com. Right. Um, yeah, I've used, I think I've had every color of Superfeet out there. Really, it seems like there's a lot of options if you look on their website. Um, but the different colors for most of the time they they um each color represents a different arch profile um from flatter to medium to higher um and they want you to go to a store and try take them out of the box put them in your boots and see how each one feels um i think it can be tricky because Everybody thinks, oh, I need arch support. I need arch support. Well, if you've got a flat arch, you, you only need that amount of arch support. If you go buy one of those, I think it's the green one that has uh, the most arch support. Like I can't wear, yeah. yeah, I can't wear that one because I, um, 
I'm reading the... Yeah, an excellent choice for those with high arches is, is the green one. So I think I'm usually a blue or a green, which has lower arches, but it's all the support that I need. Um, but I do like the... Uh, there's one that's a little bit thinner and lighter, which I like mostly because it dries faster, and that's the Trailblazer mm. uh, Comfort. Looks like there's, yeah, there's two of them. One's in men's, one's in women's. And it's just thinner overall. So if you get your boots wet, sweat them out, whatever, there's just less material. Take It dries out faster. Um, nice. If I had to buy one right now, that would probably be, be the one. Yeah. Um, a little bit of a, just a quick follow-up on, on this thing too. Uh, I've gotten quite a few questions on the sheep feet. Um, there's a company mm. called Sheep Feet that's marketing to like the outdoor industry hunters. Um, that's basically a custom orthotic. They basically send you this like a foam type thing and you press your foot into the foam and then you send it back to them and they make you a custom orthotic. Um, they are expensive and that would personally be one of my maybe last choices. If you can't find a super feet that works good for you, um, you could go to, you know, a custom orthotic like that. Um, it's have you tried it? Have you man, tried a sheep feet insole? I do have them. Yeah, yeah, I do have them. It depends on the boots. Um, mm. Like every boot, even different models of the same manufacturer, they're all built just a little bit different with a little bit, you know, as we talked with Kendall about in the boots, like a little bit different last or a different midsole or whatever. Uh, it, it seems to fit. They all fit a little bit different. So there's some boots that my arches hurt me in, with those insoles hmm. and there's some that it's, it fits me a lot better. So I don't know. It's all just like a trial and error thing, man. Oh yeah. hundred percent. That's as it is with a lot of this gear stuff. Yeah. All right. What else we got for questions? We have, uh, what is your choice for backcountry cooking, um, stove and any utensils or cookware you like? From just uh, underscore rhino. Yeah. I don't know how people come up with these. Uh, underscore W. I don't know, man. With their Instagram handles. But uh, anyways, all good. Whatever you want to call yourself on Instagram is fine with me. I recommend you get off Instagram and go outside. Yeah. Um, for everybody. Even though I know you guys all uh, look at Instagram a lot. Watch my Instagram. Uh, I'd be happier if I knew that you weren't looking at my Instagram. And instead you're. Outside chasing a turkey or something. Um, Man, uh, he asked specifically about backcountry. Right now, I've got two main systems that I use, and it depends on if it's uh, just me or, I guess, me and one other person or if it's it's two or more. Both uh, systems from MSR. I really don't feel like they even have a... Maybe I'm just not in the loop enough, but I feel like they don't have a real competitor in the backpack and stove space. But I need to look into that. My two right now, if I'm going solo, it's the Pocket Rocket. It might even be the Pocket Rocket Deluxe, which I think maybe, is is that Mm -hmm. the one that just has this, it has a clicker, right? It has a lighter built into it, igniter. Yes. Yeah. It's that. So you have that, and then you have a canister with you, and then I have a single titanium pot slash cup okay and again this is bare minimum i want to be ultra lightweight hunting with my pack on um 
that cup is going to be used to do everything from mostly warming up water, but I'm also just going to drink out of it. Um, the one major drawback from having those um, just a titanium pot or cup is that uh, they can be extremely hot to your lips when the liquid or whatever you got inside there is warm. And then that, because it's um, it's such a conductor that it can also lead to, it cools off your food and your drinks very quickly. Um, but again, I'm not usually out there to sit there and sip coffee for 30 minutes. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, not being a, a caffeinated coffee drinker anymore, a lot of times I, I just skip it and, and whatever water I've left over from making breakfast, whatever it is, I just drink the warm water, <laughs> easy cleanup, and just put it all away and I'm on my way. I don't have to sit there and, uh, you know, warm something up. But uh, that's my one to two person setup. And then if I go, and I think that the pot is from Peak. Peak titanium, I believe. And then if I go more, I have a the bigger size MSR reactor. And it is a little bit heavier, um, but I can heat up more water at one time. Um, it's more efficient because of the way that, that the burner is basically attached. It just funnels the heat directly to the pot much mm -hmm. better. Um, and I'll run that. So it's a little, it's just slightly, I mean, I don't know quarter pound four ounces or something like that heavier and but i'll use it the same way really um well i don't know sometimes i'll have a, a just a i have a i don't know rei molded plastic cup that i guess if i'm in a group situation we're all going to have a hot drink tea or whatever then instead of using the pot to do that i'll have my own cup with me um yeah msr titanium long handled spoon would be the only utensil I'm usually packing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to round it out. And so whatever food I'm eating, I can, I can eat between my pocket knife that, and that spoon and, and one pot slash cup to heat up water. Got it. Yours any different? Nice. Man, pretty close. Uh, I've got that, the same one, the MSR Pocket Rocket Deluxe uh, and a Tokes 550 milliliter uh, titanium cup. It is, I think that total setup is like six ounces. It's pretty, pretty light, which is nice. Um, and then I've got the same, the the reactor. That thing is just so clutch for like melting snow. If you have to do that and then boiling water super fast. Um, another one that I have been using a bit just because Leah owned it, the Jetboil Minimo. That's, mm. I've been really happy with that thing. Like, super happy with it. Um, I had the Jetboil Flash for a while, and it just, it, it's like their cheapest one. And I just had troubles with the, it's not, it doesn't have a regulator, but the, um, like where you turn your fuel on and off, that little knob. It mm -hmm. just seemed like I, I would just have some real troubles. It would just spit and sputter. And I couldn't get consistent fuel flow through it. So I don't know if it was gumming up or what. Um, but that Minimo does have a regulator on it. it simmers really well. And uh, I've been really happy with that. So that's been a good option. Um, pretty much same with you on utensils. Just a long-handled spoon is basically all that I'm using. Uh, one little thing I do, I did start taking like from REI or really wherever you can get a little... Uh, salt and pepper shaker thing. You put salt and pepper in the same one, or 
just whatever seasonings you want. Mm. Just take a little seasoning packet with you. Man, a little bit of like seasoning in a mountain house or something is so nice after mm. the, you know, third You can put it in a mountain day. house. Oh, yeah. Dude, salt and pepper. I mean, I know mountain house, it has a lot of sodium and salt in it or whatever, but um, I'll take even like a, any kind of a seasoning, like a smoky and savory seasoning or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. toss a little bit of that in a mountain house. It just gives it, oh, I don't know if freshness is the correct term, but it gives it a little kick that's like nice. I could see, I yeah. could, I could see how you could call it freshness. Just livens it yeah. up a little bit. Livens it up. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. What else we got here? We've got one super applicable to what's going on right now. Uh, yep. What do you use for tick protection from yep, RM score Smith 21? That one's easy. I uh, just buy the uh, Sawyer uh, permethrin product, and I usually buy the yeah. spray-on version. Uh, spray it on the couple pairs of pants I'll wear during turkey season, and uh, the couple shirts, maybe more shirts, and then uh, it's it's good for I forget. They say a lot of washes, so it's not like you don't have to reapply. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, it, it seems, it seems to work dang good. I'll bring a squirt bottle with me. Uh, when we go say to different parts of Montana where the ticks are bad and, uh, spray down my boots, um, maybe another time or, or two during the hunt, but, uh, it, it's probably uh, unnecessary. They really say you want, you, you need to spray it down and let the stuff just sit, I think for four or six hours. Let it dry before you start wearing it. Um, but yeah, that stuff works great. Yeah, pretty much the same. Uh, we don't have a ton of ticks here. It seems like this is a high tick year for us uh, so far. But we don't have just like, I've never experienced a time where I've sat down and just had, you know, you'll hear people talk about hundreds of them crawling up their legs. Yeah, um, That would freaking freak me out. But we don't have quite that here. But um, yeah. But basically the same thing, just that permethrin and spray it down on your outerwear and roll out. Yep, exactly. Uh, Let's see here. Giannis talks a lot about hunting with his kids. I'm hoping to get my three-year-old out to tag along on a turkey hunt and a whitetail hunt this year. Just wondering how you manage hearing protection with kids. You have them wear them for the whole hunt. I don't know why we don't, I don't, didn't see a name behind that question, but, uh, yes, great question. Um, and basically I would just bring along hearing protection. Uh, you can do full muffs. They obviously those work the best, but I found that the Howard light, I believe that's how you pronounce it. E L E I G H T. They make an orange band that has the, uh, replaceable orange little foam pieces for your ears. And I've had a couple of these bands, I'm not kidding, coming on 20 years because I had one from way back in the day when I was guiding. And I would just leave the cabin or the tent in the morning and throw those suckers on my neck. And when you get into the heat of the moment, they're right there and just you know pop them in quick and easy. And again, the it's going to be plenty to get the job done for that one shot at a deer or the one turkey shot. And at least they have them around their neck. They're not too cumbersome. 
I've had them. I, I've packed around muffs. My kids have also packed them around. Those seem to be uh, just a little bit harder, um, uh, just because they're bigger and bulkier. But that's uh, yeah, that, that's how I've dealt with it, and um, it's it, it seems to, to to have worked real well. Nice. Um, when is that waterproof puffy jacket coming out that you mentioned on the bear podcast? Keep your ears open or eyes open, I guess. in just like the next couple weeks. Actually, and, I think uh, from when, when this thing drops, uh, it'll be out. Oh, it'll already be out. Yeah. yeah. Good point. Uh, yeah. It's so, called the yeah. Uncompagre foundry jacket. Basically took a Uncapadre jacket and melted a uh, rain jacket over the top of it. So <laughs> be careful. <laughs> be careful with that word. People are going to get melt. freaked yeah. out. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. it is no. uh, uh, attached. the uh, The insulation is attached to the outer uh, durable face fabric. It's a very very durable jacket. That's probably the number one stand out. Uh, characteristic of this jacket, you'll see that this sucker um, is made to bust brush. Um, the same way that you can go through any kind of brush you want with the Omen rain shell, this Uncompagre Foundry is going to be the same deal, but it's basically got the same insulation as an Uncompagre uh, on the inside. So that means 100 grams um, in the chest torso area and then 60 grams in the arms. Um, but just like like Jordan was saying, a waterproof, windproof shell on the outside that's just super, super tough. Um, yep. In my Built opinion, for the not, late season. Yeah. My opinion, not really a jacket to hike in, but it's a jacket that if you know it's going to be blowing and nasty. And when I say hike, I'm talking okay, we're get out, We're at the trailhead. We're going up three miles in the dark, you know, before mm -hmm. we start hunting. Like, it's not going to be for that. But once you get up there and you know it's going to be a cold, snowy, windy day, you put that over on your, you know, one base layer, a base layer, and a mid layer, and you have that on, you're going to have the insulation and the windproofness um, for a nice, comfy day in the mountains. Um, so, yeah, if you're looking for something tough, durable uh that's gonna be a uh a pretty sweet little piece Perfect. anything you want to add mm, about yeah. it yeah no no it's just it's great for late season you're talking high winds some inclement weather um great outerwear piece but you can still pack it which is kind of nice you know it's not going to pack down as small as like a down jacket or anything but it's still like you can shove it in your pack no problem so yeah, it's like having two jackets it. in one, so it's going to not be quite as heavy as a rain jacket and a puffy jacket, but uh, definitely heavier than just one or the other. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Um, I actually, I got the first rendition of it two years ago, and so I've been wearing it. I probably have 60 days in it um, over oh, wow. a couple of years, especially using like, using it late season, Nebraska, December. It's like open on the plains. It's always windy and cold. And it's a fantastic jacket for that. So, yeah, I'm excited to uh, get into some people's hands. 
Okay, last but not least, how do you handle leather boots in the moisture? I'm from the east, but my friend that I hike with shuns leather boots because he had bad experience, had, I guess, a bad experience with them getting wet. I'm new to backpacking, but I've hunted in leather boots for years, just never for multiple days on a backpacking trip. Is that just preference or just the individual gear? Well, yeah, I feel like that's uh, some of its preference. I mean, I feel like a lot of its preference. Um, I think the biggest issue with leather boots getting them wet is if you dry them too fast, they'll shrink. They can shrink. Mm-hmm. And they take a while to dry if you yeah. get them wet. So for me, you, you definitely just want to have well taken care of leather boots. Um, I've, I've never on a backpacking hunt packed along extra Nick wax, but I've certainly had it in my duffel in a base camp scenario and a couple, three days into the week. It all depends on the conditions. If you, every morning you've got that tall, dew-covered, wet grass, even if it hasn't rained, but that's when you're out there hunting because you're out there an hour or two before daylight, right at daylight, and a couple hours after. Um, I mean, some of these high country uh, meadows in Colorado, I mean, it can be mid-thigh grasses. I mean, everything. You might as well be wearing rain pants. It's going to get wet, right? If you've got leather boots, uh, your nick wax is going to get worn off on the outside walking through that stuff, and they could get wet. So coming in with some well I say oiled, but well waterproofed boots would be my number one recommendation. And, um, you know, in Colorado, usually even after a wet, dewy morning like that, come 10 a.m., the place dries out, right? So if you're taking Mm -hmm. your midday nap, put your boots out in, you know, a breezy spot, a little bit of warm sun on them, they should dry right out. If you come into that haunt with boots that aren't well taken care of and your leather is dried out, well, guess what? The first hike you do in some wet, dew-covered grass, you're going to have feet sloshing, literally. I'm not joking. Sloshing feet. You're going to feel like you walked through a creek even though you didn't. That leather is just going to suck in that moisture, and that's all on you Um, because you just didn't take care of your boots. Um, So, I don't know. I think... The nice thing about leather is it's, it becomes breaks in, it becomes soft and malleable, it becomes a little bit more form-fitted to your foot, more than, say, the synthetics do. Uh, so yeah, I feel like you get a more comfortable boot, right? But yes, it's a, it's a thing that you have to think about to keep them waterproofed keep the moisture off of mm-hmm. them. If you can hear uh, chirping in the background, I'm <laughs> sitting next to... Oh, one of them's out. That's why he's pissed and he's chirping a bunch because he flew out. We have, I don't even know how many are in this thing. There's probably 10, <laughs> five or I don't know, 10 day old chicks uh, oh, sitting oh, right oh. next to me. Let me put the sucker back in here. All right. Sorry. Back, back to hunting uh, uh, in leather boots. So man, I, I, I've done both. I will say that the synthetics, like I have those uh what's that what's that? the hanwag the, the hanwag makra no leather mm-hmm. there all synthetic very quick drying boot been very happy with that boot uh, i just wore it 
over the weekend doing some turkey hunting. And I did notice that after that boot's been sitting since last fall, little stiff, right? Just a different feel than the leather. I still mm-hmm. love it. I, just, I think it's a great boot, but different feel than the leather. leather. But like I said, gets wet. It's going to dry super fast. Um, so yeah, you're going to have to make up your own decision on, on that. But, uh, even that boot, even though it's synthetic, it's, if, if you, if I walk through dew covered grass for two hours, uh, it's going to get wet too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. But one thing on leather boots too, um, not to stray too far from the question, but over synthetic, it just seems like leather is just more durable, like more naturally just Mm. durable so like you should think about that too when you go on hunts um i've talked about it before i took a pair of synthetic boots to alaska on a sheep hunt and was just in rocks all the time and just really shredded the sides of them down here in the lower 48 if you were in rock slides and shale and stuff all the time like the same thing would probably happen but just Mm -hmm. trying to match those conditions down here i use those boots all uh like winter slash spring and all summer scouting and stuff and i never had any issues with them i was super confident going into that trip with them but they just got tore up and like a leather boot just wouldn't have done that too um so that's straight away a little bit from the water proofing question or uh moisture question but something to consider too when you're when you're looking at a boot but i really like my i really like my my leather boots Especially like snow hits the ground. Yep. Cool. Well, thanks for listening to another right. episode of the uh, Gear Talk podcast. Uh, as always, and we were saying earlier, uh, think about it. We got a. We're going to do an upcoming car camping episode. Send uh, if you have any questions regarding that. Send it to Gear Talk at um, or any questions related to gear. Uh, make sure to tell your friends how much you're learning listening to gear talk podcast tell them to listen to if you have a minute we'd appreciate it if you went on to itunes found gear talk there gave us a review uh hit the farthest most right star um that's only if you think it's a five-star podcast um if you think it's only three and a half you can do that one too um but uh yeah do that you can find us on instagram jordan bud or Giannis um what else that's it you got anything else to say jordan no man i don't i'm gonna go pick up some turkey hunters oh nice well good luck to you and your turkey hunters you listeners get off the instagram stop listening to this podcast (laughs) go out and get outside and go hunting thanks bye Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. 
I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.